0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript podcast. I'm Matt Lynch, a co host, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown Hughes. This week, we have a re release of an earlier episode that I recorded with Lucy Papiat back uh, a couple years ago after she published her book, Women in Worship at Corinth. And um, um, we're republishing this episode because it prepares the way for the next episode, which will make reference back to this one. So hopefully this will set the stage a little bit for the idea of Paul quoting from his opponents in his letters in ways that aren't explicit in the text, but are discernible based on maybe uh, other clues that you can detect in the text. And Lucy discusses this with regard to 1 Corinthians 11. And there are a couple changes since this episode. Since then, she's published her IBP book, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, And also, I've moved to Regent College since then. I was a colleague at WTC of Lucy's at the time, and we're still good friends. So I'm excited to reshare this episode and hope that you can sort of store it away for the next one as well uh, with Andrew Rallera, when uh, Chris Tilling interviews him to talk about his work on quotations in Paul's letters. So hopefully that gives you a bit of context, and we're going to jump right into the interview here. Lucy, welcome to OnScript.
1: Hi, thanks.
0: Lucy, what was your route to becoming principal of a theological college? Was it was that your childhood aspiration?
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> None, nothing I've done has been my childhood aspiration. Oh, okay. Um, well, well, I started when I was doing my PhD. I started doing a bit of teaching at WTC and also Trinity College Bristol. So, I was, um, people were nice to me and gave me some teaching opportunities, which was great and um and then i found myself in a position where uh, there were some gaps at WTC for jobs and I got offered the Dean of Studies job, which was a surprise. Um, and I was pleased to take that. So I've done your job, Matt. You've done your job. <laughs> You've done a much better job. <laughs> no, I didn't do a better job. And uh, and, then, and then WTC actually went through a funding crisis and I found myself in the middle of that and uh, felt that, was it that your
0: had, childhood aspiration?
1: No, that certainly wasn't. <laughs> to land wasn't in the middle of a childhood funding crisis, aspiration. Although it has its highs, and uh, I mean, it's quite exhilarating in some senses. I found um, because it really focuses everybody on on priorities and what you actually really want. And it was a good thing. It was a very good thing for WTC for us to be thrown out on our own and have to sink or swim. And, um we, as you know, we gathered some amazing people around us, you being one of them oh, and, thanks. Uh, and we uh, and we made the college, I think, into what it was meant to be uh, which is a very exciting place to st- study and teach theology,
0: yeah, that it is um did you uh, on your journey to getting into academics and becoming a principal. Did you face any opposition um, to your studies in academia or leading a college because you're a woman?
1: Um, no, I didn't actually. I, I think I've been remarkably sheltered in that regard and I it's unusual for someone not to face opposition. I think when I was studying my PhD, I used to say to Nick my husband that I didn't think people really knew at all what I was doing so no one ever asked me about it and I and if I if I mentioned it it was kind of a conversation stopper so it so not really opposition but m- more slight indifference like why would you bother spending all your time doing something like that when I was studying and had children small children um but then the the principal's job, again, we were, you know, at WTC, we were very much under the radar in those years. And so I think people just slightly ignored it rather than deciding to campaign against me. Yeah. And wh- why good.
0: did you decide to get into the study of theology in the first place?
1: Because I was doing a lot of preaching um, in our church and I, in my mid-twenties, I had felt that I should... Um, I thought God was calling me to a preaching ministry actually, which was kind of unusual at the time. Um, there weren't many young women who were doing stuff like that in our world. Um <clears throat> and that was confirmed by my vicar, who was my uncle and my curate, who was my husband. <laughs> so it's really nepotistic there. But um but nice to be affirmed by your nearest and dearest. And so they, they said, Yeah, Yes, study, go do it. So I became a lay reader in the Anglican Church, which is a preaching ministry, and then <clears throat> had lots of opportunities to preach. But as I was doing that, I had this growing sense that I actually didn't really know what I was talking about a lot of the time. <laughs> it's good to be aware of that. Still true, <laughs> <But> <laughs> I wish more were. <laughs> I'm not sure much has changed, but um, but and uh, and I would listen to other teachers and and listen to my husband who'd done a whole degree and think actually investing if you're going to teach and preach you should study so um that was the beginning and I signed up for a bachelor's degree um, which I did by correspondence uh, while we lived in Zimbabwe and Sheffield and then and then I sort of became an addict, really, as that happens, you know, and I thought, well, I can't stop now, and, and went on to do a master's. And then in my master's met my supervisor, Murray Ray, and he said, you should think about doing a PhD. The so, is
0: history. Yeah. So moving on to your <clears throat> books on First Corinthians, you've written uh, Women in Worship in Corinth, and then the follow-up to that, which is a more accessible version of it yeah. uh, unveiling Paul's women. When did you know that you would hit on something about First Corinthians 11 that needed more research and that ultimately led you to write the book?
1: Um, <clears throat> well, I knew quite uh, very early on, I think. I started to research women in Paul because I, I never actually had done. I'd done my PhD in systematic theology on Christ and the Spirit and Trinitarian theology. So... Which I love, and um, <clears throat> but found myself as the principal of a college and a woman, obviously, um, being asked a lot what well, what do you think about the women and the Bible? what do you think about these passages, and what do you think about paul and and I thought, gosh i haven 't actually really thought that through I, and i didn't I knew i didn't have good enough answers and <clears throat> um so I I thought I must do my own research and I I thought it would. I thought it would take me a couple of days of reading. Literally, I thought it'd be fine. I'll just. We got some good commentaries at home because you know Nick collects Bible commentaries, and um, and I can go to the library and I'll just do, read a few commentaries, make a few notes, and it'll be sorted. And I started um, with Gordon Fee because. I think he's brilliant, and I thought, I'm sure he's got all the answers, so I, and I thought, well, I'll start with 1 Corinthians 11, I know there are other passages, but um, let's just start there, and it was like going into a sort of vortex, I mean, I, I so I obviously read the text first, and thought, it's very strange, this this passage, um, and then turned to Fee, and Felt like I was being. I, I thought I'm not sure that I'm clearer after that. Actually, uh, I mean, he'd done very close work, and um, but I thought if I had to explain that in five minutes, could I do that? And realised I couldn't at all, um, and that I still had an awful lot of questions that I didn't think Fee had answered. So then I went to Thistleton, and then I went to that, started my journey, and um, the more that i read um actually the more confused i became uh, and the more i immersed myself in the text the more confused i ke- became and then i kept reading these very big scholars and intelligent men and women who were saying this is a very confusing passage so um so it took me weeks months it sucked me in and i and i yeah so, and I still I still will read it, read the text and read about it as, when I can.
0: Yeah. And we'll talk about some of the problems you um, thought through in a moment. But I, wa- I want to talk for a moment about the fact that you've taught this passage now for um, a couple years to quite a few audiences. And how do women react when they read 1 Corinthians 11 in your experience?
1: Well, it depends on the age group. Um so what I tend to do is I want people to engage with the text as they receive it to start with because I think that's the best place to teach from. So um it, it I and I realized early on that with an older group of people um they are less inclined to to criticize the biblical text or or to admit that they f- have difficulties with it um and so cuz what i ask them to do is to read the passage or i read it out loud and then ask them to have a look at it and to say um so I'll, I'll ask a gentle question like if paul was here what would you want to ask him you know something like that if 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 that doesn't bring anything up um in terms of <clears throat> trying to get them to say that there are difficulties in the text or <clears throat> or that they find it offensive in any way um then i'll i'll push a bit harder and sort of say well where are the problems is there anything you find offensive or difficult you know so um but i found with an older group one time i was teaching it and i said just, just pretend it's not the Bible and tell me what you think. And that unleashed a whole load of response that I uh, that I wasn't really prepared for. Um, and that was the older people. If I ask a younger group of people, the young women are very vocal about how difficult they find this text and that they, I mean, at best they'll say they don't understand it and look sort of. Um, kind of hurt in some ways, and it and it and then sometimes I have someone expressing real mm-hmm. anger at Paul mm-hmm. in a group.
0: Do you think that generational difference is because older women have been exposed to the text more, and so they it's sort of a little hard to extricate themselves from this being in their Bible um and just a normal part of things, whereas maybe younger groups have a different experience and not, um, not as much exposure
1: i think that maybe it's more there's a sort of self-selecting i'm speaking to a group of people and those women have been in church for a long time so they've chosen to so i'm not speaking to people who have left and not come back because they've found the church difficult as women so these are women who've they probably for quite a long time have made choices to acquiesce to certain systems that that are not amenable to women often in the evangelical world but they've made a decision that they will put god and the church first and that they'll kind of put up with other stuff so that that years of putting up with stuff forms you into a certain type of person and and they've learned i think that it you know it's easier just to give in or to receive something and not question because i think that if you allow yourself those those sort of um angry responses or um it, it, you know it's you're then at odds with the people that are teaching you or you're sitting with and worshiping with and um that can be exhausting and and put you on the outside and i think a lot of women have made many sacrifices just to stay you know just to be there and and like women who will go to churches where the men don't think that women should teach and and they don't they're not really happy with that but they want to go to church and their friends go to church and they want their kids to go to church and so so they just learn to not to question and not to allow that sort of I guess, you know, outrage in a sense. that, But with the younger crowd, and especially if they're going to churches where, they, I mean, their church may be led by a young woman or whatever. Um, they don't mind so much about expressing it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you talk in the book about the importance of the imagination. And and I thought that was interesting because for for a lot of people when they hear the imagination, they might think, importing things into the text. You know, we're going to imagine a scenario in Corinth. So what do you think is the the positive or constructive role of the imagination in interpreting 1 Corinthians 11?
1: Well, first of all, I would say that everybody has imagined scenarios when they're reading the Bible. So it's, it, it would be a complete falsehood to think that there are people who don't do that and they, everybody is going to bring something. I, I mean, they may say, "Oh no," but the text is telling us that this is the case. But this is the fascinating thing about the the whole picture of Paul and women, is that it has fired people's imagination. The text and some of the history that we know of the early church has fired people's imaginations in completely opposite directions and that is a really fascinating phenomenon so you it it disallows us from claiming the ground of saying you know the way i imagine it to be is superior to the way you imagine it to be because you know because somehow my imagination is is well-founded and yours isn't so the we all imagine even when we hear stories about jesus and how he he reacts to people and how he treats people we get pictures in our head about who he is and the expression on his face and you know and then and then we read the text through that yeah tone of voice yeah and so imagination is a massively important part of how we receive our faith through the text. And so first of all we're all doing it. Um and secondly it's easier if you if someone's open about what this, this is how I imagine it to be. And and actually I was I love. I, lo- I kind of love the that process. As I was reading about one Corinthians eleven, I was always being asked by these Bible scholars, "Imagine, just imagine." I was thinking, "I yeah, I know, but I don't imagine like you imagine. You know, you you imagine that I don't." And and um, as if and once they had said, "Imagine this," as if then that was the reality. And I thought that's a funny step to make. You know, imagine, imagine. All the women chattering at once during the whole service. And mm. I was like, actually, I can't. <laughs> you know, Like, I think probably they wanted to hear the teaching. You know, yeah, it's like this yeah. sort of assumption that women just gossip all the time. And being underneath. worked up into an ecstatic yeah. frenzy. Oh, yeah, the ecstatic frenzy one. I mean, that's, you know, so as a a woman who I think is interested in learning and reasonably intelligent, and I assume many of the women in the early church were like that, I don't necessarily want to gossip all the way through my church service. So, you know, anyway, so the imagination is a very important part of how we receive the text and um, and I think a good process for all of us is to look at what, how is the text firing our imagination, and what have we been taught already that that actually has just been imagined and now has mm-hmm. become a reality for us
0: mm-hmm.
1: that isn't in the text.
0: And so, as you began to imagine the situation in Corinth, what questions do you, what, what aspects of the imagined scenario did you begin to question that you were reading in? among commentators?
1: So I would, there there was one very clear um, disjunction that I noticed. And it was that as I was reading in the commentaries, there's a consensus that Paul is addressing men by and large in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and that it was the men that were causing problems for him, they were being divisive. um, And that there was a so, so there are clues for us in the text that he is addressing the the males in the in the church, um, but then you would get to one Corinthians eleven and, and and fourteen where there's at the end where there's also the the reference to women staying silent and asking their husbands at home, and so um, and then suddenly they would say well obviously the women were being really difficult here and um and i couldn't what i couldn't reconcile really was but the so the heart of the problem with the women is that they're taking their head coverings off and um that to me did seem really odd i i mean i i and it doesn't come anywhere else in the new testament and so but that that in is really in a nutshell what the problem was I know there are issues that some people think this is about hair I I don't really don't think it is um we could talk about that but but mostly I think the consensus is with the head coverings and the people that I think have looked I don't know how, quite how to say this but the people, well, the people I find more convincing let's say are, are the ones who all say this as head coverings and I, I find their reading of the text most convincing um, and therefore if it's about, if the problem is that women are taking their head coverings off in worship what is that telling us about the church?
0: Hmm, hmm. Um Now, we spoke in the last episode of OnScript with Michael Lakey about evangelical hermeneutics and 1 Corinthians 11, and he identified a number of of problems with complementarian and egalitarian readings of the text, which I thought was interesting. Um, And and you've come to similar conclusions as well, that both of the standard readings of of this passage don't really work. So, um, I'm wondering if we could just go through and identify some of the Problems that you saw in the text that pose challenges to both egalitarian and complementarian um, readings of the text. Um, so, so first of all, why why do you think a cultural reading of the passage is wrong? And, and by that I mean um, saying, well, this is a cultural situation where head coverings in that society were a way of. Of honoring people, honoring husbands, I guess. And, um, you know, Paul's just speaking into that situation. But given that our culture is different, it no longer applies.
1: Yeah. So that would be a sort of standard egalitarian reading, I think. Um, I, I don't think that the text offers that to us at all. Um, and that, that's where Michael and I um, think the same. Um, so y- you said what where did I go to in a sense with the text? And the the key verses are verses seven to nine, which is what, I mean, Michael's book is called Image and Glory. And I think that the text is telling us very clearly that there is there are reasons for why women should be veiled in worship, in public worship. And um, the reason that Paul gives if it well, Michael thinks it's Paul. I don't think it's Paul. Um but the reasons that the women in Corinth are expected to be veiled during worship are theological, um, very clearly and they they're rooted in crea- in a creation theology, which I f- Find difficult to reconcile to the creation of theology that we find in Genesis, and this is a really interesting discussion because um, Michael doesn't find it so difficult to reconcile to Genesis, and I really do. So that's a um, that's a good scholarly debate that I think we need to carry on having actually, because I'm I'm not sure we've really got to the bottom of that. Um, I certainly don't feel I have, and I and. I'm sure Michael would be interested in carrying on this discussion. So the verses are for a man ought not to have his head veiled. So the and the issue this is clearly the issue that is that the text is saying, men you need to not wear a, a veil over your head, which was pra- common practice among Roman and Jewish men. Um and. So they are being told in in this text that they should take their head covering off in the public worship, and the reason that they're to do that is because they are the image and glory of god um but woman so so there's there's this sort of Contrast set up between the man and the woman, and the man doesn't wear anything on his head because of his status in God, which is that he is God's image and glory. So he has a particular relationship to God, which means that he doesn't need to cover his head. Now that's kind of a mystery for us, but very interesting that this is telling us that. And um, so the woman, so okay, so you're like, oh, okay, so man, man, that's man's. Role or status before God, but isn't that woman's as well? Oh, isn't that what we're told in Genesis? I think we are. Um, but no, woman is actually the glory of man, so she, so her glory, I, I think that how I would describe it is that the text is telling us that the woman has a derived glory or a reflected glory or something, so her glory is she has her glory. Um, by virtue of the her relationship with the man, not with God, and he has his relationship with God.
0: Yeah, it feels like a, a funny combination of Genesis one and two. Yeah, where you have the man created first, then the woman. Yeah, and and then going back to Genesis one and seeing man made in the image of God, mm-hmm. which is actually defined then as male and female, but skipping that part, taking the Adam made in the image of God. And then going to Genesis two and saying, "Well, the woman's second, and so the man is has that kind of direct relationship with yeah. God, and the woman comes after, so it's derived." Yes. So it's a, it's a, it is a you could you could see how someone could cut the pieces of Genesis one and two and construct that picture, you, but it seems like a distorted reading of Genesis one and two.
1: Well, and that's interesting because that is what. Um, Complementary or, or or hierarchical readings, as I would call them, of of gender relations from the text. That's exactly what they do. So, um, and, and this text gives us a a, a sort of further window into how someone might do that how, how they might take those two texts and and sort of make a pastiche where where man is has priority and precedence which is and that's what michael sees in this text and i see it too so i i think well yeah that and and that that's a that's the reason given is that that man has a privileged position in his relationship with god woman has a derived Um, position from man and and then this this strange um, connection then between the the woman who has to wear a a, some sort of symbol or sign of authority over her Um, and then that links us straight back to verse three where you have at the reference to head so your physical head <clears throat> is representative of your symbolic head, who in the woman's case is a man.
0: Yeah, let me just read verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. So you have, just to unscramble that, you have God is the head of Christ and then Christ is the head of man and the man's the head of woman.
1: Yeah, and and you, uh, you're you reading from... which what, that's the nrsv. It. Yeah. And uh, that's what I've got in front of me. So we've both got husband, which actually I think is the correct translation. That, but in a lot of bibles it will just say man. So so Christ is yeah, so this is an interesting thing. In the nrsv, Christ is the head of every every man and the husband is the head of the wife. So they've made a decision there to use man in one sense, in the first pairing and then to change the same word into husband in the second, um, which is a, that's a big theological decision right there. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. <laughs>
1: um, and then God's the head of Christ. So so that's, so already those editors have, and translators have, they've made a really big decision for us. Um, and it did. Why that, is that so big? Because um, if you said, Christ is so you've got two other options you could say Christ is the head of every husband and the husband is the head of his wife that actually I think that's pretty poor line so I would be happy with that I'd go with that as in I would say I think that's probably what Paul thought um, and then, and God is the head of Christ. I mean, we could. I think yeah. Paul had a very clear view of what he thought a head was, and yeah. it doesn't mean authority. So, and rule. so, what? Yeah. What do you think? Because <laughs> so I mean, to could, be
0: to be comfortable with that is is a little uh, surprising for some people. Comfortable with the fact
1: that it's Paul.
0: Yeah, well, well, th- <laughs> and that. Um, I then mean I to, would
1: d- describe what I think he means by head. Yeah, yeah. Well, which is I, a whole I, other conversation. Yeah.
0: Do you have a, a brief snapshot of that?
1: A brief snapshot would. I, I think if you. <clears throat> I think that this idea that Paul uses of the husband as the kephale of the wife oh, it, it comes up in Ephesians 5 so I think it is a pretty clear I I I think he taught that um and but I think that his what he was doing there was he was actually redefining the role of the male in the household and the husband in the household um as being a, a a sacrificial and empowering role, I would probably put it in those. Those would be my two main um, concepts that I think come through. So he he the the husband lays down his life for his wife, as Christ laid down his life for the church, but also is the cornerstone. So the other the other um, idea that's very much linked to this idea of kephale in Paul's writing it, it it comes up in colossians where um christ is the head over all things but he's the, also the cornerstone so he it's like in him everything holds together and i think that paul understood the role of the man in that society as being you know they had all the power i mean they literally had all the power and um with that power i think that they were supposed to in paul's mind in his view they were called as christian men to exercise that in a particular way which was as one who empowers by sacrificing so that's a radical difference between seeing head as the one who rules over and has authority so
0: yeah so he uses a term that men might have nodded their heads at and then redefined it redefines it yeah
1: yeah i mean he was like well you are the head because they were they, i mean they they that was it they were you, you know, they ran everything they had their households they could do what they wanted with the people in their households they had the right of life or death over them they could sleep with them all if they wanted you know so paul redefining that that role as a monogamous but you know if they were married then they had to be monogamous everyone else was out of bounds that's really radical and that's your wife and you you know she's yours and um and and then their role in terms of how they should empower their wives uh i think is very clear and that also comes out in one peter so but to go back to so so this interesting here the the verse three of how it's translated. Is important because if you, if in your Bibles it says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, which is what it says in ours, um, then immediately you've got a question of, well, which, is that every every man that's ever been created has this relationship to Christ? Uh, That's so. That's creation theology. If you say. Christ is the head of every husband, then that's marriage theology and ge- marriage and sort of gender theology. Um, and But it, you, you could say, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman. And again, that is creation gender theology. So it's all, you have really, I think, readers... Um, have to, and teachers have to make a decision about how they are going uh, di- to uh, translate um, that word, those words for husband and wife and man and woman.
0: Now, um, I want to shift gears here and do a speed round. Um, and the idea is I uh, ask questions and you have uh, about three to five seconds to answer them. <laughs> and they can't be too well thought out. <laughs> Okay. Um, what's the most absurd interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 that you've encountered? <laughs> I, I know the answer to this. <laughs> this
1: is the best question. Um, I, for me personally, although I know some people take it more seriously, uh, the oddest interpretation that I've ever heard is that the, is that the head covering symbolizes an external testicle. Obviously. <laughs> it's self-evident yeah it is actually i think that might be hair which is kind of even <laughs> oh, oh my word that is horrible I th- no it's really yeah. no no it's really horrid and yeah. because there's also reference to semen as well which makes wow. it even worse
0: how, how do people end up in that <laughs> place where they're reading the bible that way it's very I disturbing okay know. um knock knock who's there cow says
1: cow says who
0: no cow says moo <laughs> knock knock who's there a little old lady
1: a little old lady who
0: all this time I knew you I, I didn't know that you could yodel <laughs> knock okay. knock that's knock. a good
1: one who's there etch etch who bless, bless you my you. friend <laughs> good. All right, what's
0: the most significant book in systematic theology in the last 50 years
1: oh my word you know that is an impossible question and yeah, it, it is hard I Really, there's only there's so only uh, one way of being possibly able to answer that. I think um, in that, so I, I'm going to say that Moltman's book, uh, "The Crucified God," it was like a. I think it represents a watershed moment in the last fifty years, a little over fifty, um, <coughs> of how the doctrine of god um was reshaped post war and i think um thinking had been going that way obviously but there was something about i think the publication of this book um that was a marker in in saying pe- people are thinking differently there was a there was a challenge to the classical doctrine of god which um and theologians have Ha, ha, have to respond to that now in an ongoing way and I, and i see it in the classroom and i hear it in sermons and i you know literally and so i think i think what he did and what he was expressing through that um is it was a moment that has significance where
0: do you think we hear it most at the popular sermon level like what would be a phrase that's multmanian in origin that we might not N- realize
1: i think phrases like the suffering god without god in christ for instance is you know so i would be more comfortable with right um
0: god in christ suffered rather yeah, than yeah god yeah god in god's self-suffering <laughs> yeah
1: god in the flesh um so the idea of god in his essence in his being suffering in the same way that we suffer because that's the assumption behind it so that my suffering tells me how God suffers um and that's I think that's pretty sort of common parlance really yeah it's Um, interesting
0: that's made its way into biblical studies as well right with uh Richard Baucom and Terence Fretheim and others um would would have taken up that Mm -hmm. that theme all right we I got sucked in um I'm gonna keep going the speed round (laughs) knock knock who's there Mustache.
1: Mustache who?
0: I mustache you a question, <laughs> but I will save shave it for later. <laughs> I botched shave that one.
1: It. All right. Shave it for later. All right, knock, knock. Who's there? I eat mop. I eat mop who? <laughs> That's revolting.
0: <laughs> All right, what's one idea in biblical or theological study that you think needs to die?
1: Um... I think it's dying, but I definitely think the idea that biblical scholars and systematic theologians can work in isolation from each other needs to just die forever.
0: Yeah, I've tried it in this office. (laughs) It's not really working. (laughs) All right. What have you learned through failure in your work?
1: Um, I've learned that I don't like failing. Um, I've learned an awful lot through failure in lots of areas. Um, I've learnt, what would I say? I think it's really good to be aware of your own limitations and just to work with what you're capable of and be happy with what you're not capable of doing. Um, And so you get a sort of much more realistic sense of your own self. Um, I think it, it definitely keeps you, humble um sometimes it's a bit too crushing and then you have to work through why have I been allowed what why why have I let this really crush me and what power have those people got over me that that you know I feel like my failure might take me out completely and you you really you know because that's that's silly in what I I mean it's kind of you got to grow up you know so the The kind of crushing things um are really good, I think, to have to get over and get through and and sort out in yourself why you can't cope with any form of rejection and kind of get healed enough to to cope with people not liking you, not liking what you do, you know being whatever and um and I think that's a good process in life,
0: yeah. Who's your favorite theologian, living and dead?
1: Dead? Um, I have lots of... I have so many favorite theologians. You have to pick one. I know. I hate the way you do this. Um, (laughs) It changes. Also, it changes all the time. So, I... um,
0: You can do one with a sidekick.
1: One with a sidekick. I I always... I go back... to athanasius a lot i yeah what shall i say
0: what is sidekick today be, G- be john owen
1: john owen oh yeah john o- oh let's say john owen today mm-hmm. but tomorrow i might say something different right, how about alive alive um is athanasius alive no not okay. anymore okay well with the lord he is
0: okay yeah true <laughs>
1: um I really like Catherine Tanner, and then definitely linked to that, Ian McFarland, because he was um, he, her students. I like their Christology a lot. Uh,
0: most overrated theologian. <laughs> alive. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. You don't have to do alive.
1: Matt Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, most overrated. There's definitely a name in my head which I would not be prepared to say.
0: Okay. Uh, first letter of the <laughs> no, name of that I'm not person even okay that. okay um how do you find time to write books co-lead a church teach <laughs> have a family and lead a theological college what are what are your time efficiency pro tips
1: um time efficiency is plan everything really carefully so i'm I'm a inveterate planner um and I I spend a lot of time planning as, as much as I do working so that I know I chunk my time, I make sure I work. I, I, so I'll do different tasks at different times of the day to maximise my best thinking time, my worst times, you know, for, so I have meetings, emails, thinking, writing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, early nights and...
0: Early about mornings? It. yeah
1: early mornings yeah early mornings are the best because yeah. then you don't have things and other- your early
0: mornings are like three am
1: well five
0: five okay <laughs> and last one what are the hallmarks of charismatic theology
1: that's a good question um i would charismatic theology the well the big hallmark is this idea that human beings can be filled with the holy spirit so that obviously that's a it's an anthropological claim that God can pour out His spirit into us as beings, like creatures, and that we somehow are receptacles of the spirit, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, so that's a big claim about human being, and I, I think it's a great one because um, I think it's true. And then, and then all the, the all the theology of. <coughs> of the charismatic life, life in the spirit kind of flows out of that. So what are the implications of that? If you can be filled with the spirit of God.
0: Hmm. Hmm. All right. Shifting from the speed round, um, a couple more questions on the problems with first Corinthians 11. And I know our times running short. Um, One of the things that I thought that you pointed out, I thought was quite interesting is um, the problem with verse. Um, I don't know which one it is but it says nature teaches that long hair is a disgrace. Um and this is r- with regard to men. Mm-hmm. Um and so but it, but you pointed out that it would be this is from 37 page 37 in your book. It would be very odd if if it were Paul who was saying this because he himself had long hair while he was in Corinth. In in Acts 18:18 18, 18, uh Luke uh makes a reference to Paul cutting his hair when he left Corinth in relation to a vow he had made before he went there. And you figured out that his hair would have been at least nine inches long. Mm-hmm. And so there's Paul, long-haired. If this is Paul saying this, you know, hey, mm-hmm. guys, it's a disgrace <laughs> if men have a long hair, and he's this long-haired hippie yeah. saying it. like. So um, that touches on... Part of, part of your uh, approach to this text. So, what is your kind of constructive alternative to standard egalitarian and complementarian readings of First Corinthians eleven?
1: Right. Yeah. So I, so I have, um, I reject the cultural reading. Um, I think on good grounds, really, that I I don't think that the text invites us to understand this in terms of a cultural practice. That's very problematic. Um not least of all because there wasn't actually one cultural practice that everyone conformed to. So the idea that if I wore a head covering that I would defend nobody or, or or that if I didn't I would defend everybody is actually not true of the culture.
0: Right, because you have Greek, Roman and yeah. Jewish practices yeah. all kind of different and so
1: <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um so anyway, there's lots of reasons why the cultural um reading is flawed. Um And then that the hierarchical reading actually is definitely within the text, but is, um, theologically problematic because it's based on the idea, and Michael brings this out so clearly in his book, and I think brilliantly, um, is because it's based on the assumption that the woman is metaphysically subordinate to the man. That's what, I mean, he, he brings this out so clearly, and I, I think his book is really brilliant. A big yeah, big plug for his book. Yeah, and way. it's not
0: just a, a, she doesn't just have a role that's different than man with equal no. standing before God, but no. she's actually... Subordinate,
1: yes, and hence the need for the covering, and that's an interesting point because we actually don't know what the covering actually means. That we, we we're not really told, apart from this concept of authority, which comes out in verse ten. Um, do I mean that? Yes, and and the angels, of course. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. want to offend them, not at all. No, so um, so, yes. so that's why I think that the hierarchical readings or the ones that that say, well, of course you should wear head covering because you're subordinate. That's really not a good message, um, and the cultural one I don't is wrong. I think so. I was sort of left with a dilemma, um, but then <clears throat> one of the things that I saw and everyone see, most people see, is the um, flip flopping in the passage of Paul seemingly espousing certain views in 7 to 9 and then giving us a very different view in verse 12 or, uh, or well, starting at 11 and then 11 and 12 where suddenly it seems like, oh, no, wait a minute. Now you're saying, you were saying that man was related to woman like this and now you're saying they're interdependent. Yeah, And because yeah,
0: it says, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman.
1: Yeah. So the the commentators on the passage are divided um, by how severely you think the break happens at 11, whether is he contradicting himself or is he just giving a slight tweak? Or, or is it actually that he's continuing along his thought lines, um, and I and many others think that this is a contradictory statement. So he's saying one thing, then he's saying something different. So there were very, for me, there were clues in the passage that the passage was incoherent as a piece. And um, that it actually has contradictions within it and problems within it that make it difficult to read it as a whole. I think most people reading it straight off will see that. They do see that. Um, so you either have to sort of really, really try and convince someone that there it works as a coherent whole. And actually Michael's done a pretty good job of that, although he hasn't convinced me, which he knows. But um, the... Uh, and, and also the theological implications of what he thinks it means are just awful. Um, but, <clears throat> or, or you say, well, wait a minute, Paul is saying two different things at once. And then that took me to the point, and I heard actually Douglas Campbell talking about the whole thing of Paul using rhetorical strategies, uh, rhetorical um, writing in his letters. And often, citing his opponents or citing the people he disagrees with. And then and then I thought, of course, he does that in 1 Corinthians. I mean, he does it a lot in 1 Corinthians. Yep. And actually, it's seeming now that commentators are thinking he's doing it a lot more than we all, all thought in the beginning.
0: Yeah, so he quotes so an opponent and then yeah. refutes that view. Yeah,
1: and mm-hmm. and anyway, that fits with the whole setting of 1 Corinthians that we know he's engaged in discussion and dispute with with the guys at Corinth. Um, this are one Corinthians is two Corinthians. So there's been some back and forth. And and the more I reflected on that, the more I suddenly thought, actually, I think that he's just engaging his opponents here and that the worst ideas in this passage are theirs. And, and that to me, so I, my book, Women in Worship at Corinth is, is the, it, is taking three passages in eleven to fourteen, where I think that there's a pattern of of a rhetorical argument, um, marked by an inconsistency in meaning. So you you have even blatant contradictions, like you have in fourteen twenty to twenty five, is a much clearer example mm. of this mm. actually. Yeah, um, and, and what happens there? That's like, in the tongues and prophecy passage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul's given you a big lead up to what he thinks tongues is and what he thinks prophecy is. And in really brilliant, I think, sort of explanation for us of what tongues is and how it functions, what prophecy is, how it functions, and this is what it's here for. And you're, uh, by, by the time you get to, um, to 14, 20 to 25, you're, you're fully expecting him to say, so tongues is a gift for believers – or a sign for believers, and prophecies a sign for unbelievers. Yeah, and he doesn't. He says exactly the opposite. Yeah,
0: verse twenty-two: tongues yeah. then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is yeah. not for believers but for um, not for unbelievers but for believers.
1: Yeah, and and you do, that totally uh, takes you by surprise, and you are thinking, but you don't mean that. You've just been saying the opposite, and then you get to the end of the. Um, of, 14 and he's talking about or the end of that section and he's talking about unbelievers walking in and saying oh god is really among you because you prophesied yeah but if all prophesy (laughs) an
0: unbeliever outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account so there it's for outsiders so he's yeah yeah there's a direct so so there's this switch
1: that happens in 22 and jb phillips famously uh, thought that that was just a mistake and swapped them over Mm. because Because it, it really it jumbled. doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah, so let's just make it make sense. Whereas I think, well, you can't really swap them over, not really. Um, but you could say this does make sense if you say that's what the Corinthians were thinking that Paul is correcting. So I think that he's doing it in three places in 11 to 14, which is all his section on worship and how we should conduct ourselves in worship, including this amazing um, sort of rebuke that he has for them about the poor, which is very significant, I think, because I think that it, the, the rebuke he has for them about the poor, it is bolsters my understanding of how he is also rebuking them for oppressing women. Um, so he, so they're oppressing the women by saying, um, "Look, we're the head of you, and we're the image and glory, and you're not." And so for you not to have your head coverings on is shaming us and making us look bad in front of the angels, whatever that means. But they clearly had some quite developed angelology, mm. actually. Yeah. Um, and Paul also addresses that in yeah. other, you know.
0: Yeah, I, w- I wanted to, to highlight that. So <laughs> so what you've done here is you've shown how there are internal contradictions within 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 and elsewhere. Mm. We know that Paul quotes his opponents and then, if certain sections of 11, 2 to 16 are Pauline, that creates problems with other parts of his own letter. So, just as an example, if he's saying, Women, you got to cover your head because of the angels, you don't want to offend them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, you bring this out in the book, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced by death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels. And to mortals, so Paul is saying, we've, you know, we've been the lowest of the low as apostles, and that's our status marker, and and that we're humiliated even before angels. Mm. And exactly. He doesn't. He doesn't seem to worry about that.
1: No, precisely. And and then so the other thing you asked me about, you know, how I arrived at different decisions, and the other thing about Paul addressing men is that he also is addressing the honor shame culture. So so this this was the other big. I'm glad you brought that up because that that was one of the other biggest sticking points for me was that i'd read these commentators the massive consensus that paul is dealing with the honor shame culture in a way of deconstructing it you know like saying look we're all i'm shamed as an apostle that's i live he lived in shame and and he thought that was his honor yeah he lived in shame yeah so
0: my chains here they they are yeah so
1: to then to implement a cultural system of honor and shame in the middle of the church to do with men and women. I thought that's really, really,
0: um, Uh, ass backwards. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I didn't buy it. I mean, I don't buy it. And I, and one of the things that I think is that I'm, I might, I may not be right. I don't say in my book, this is definitely exactly what's going on in the passage, but um if michael's right we it's deeply worrying really, and he knows that um because we have a, a text in in the middle of our bibles that is is really really um theologically disparaging to women um and demeaning of women uh, and the but if and if i'm right then i've rescued paul and rescued women um if neither of us is right then we've really got to go dig back into this passage because the current explanations are incoherent. They, they don't work. They're not really, really wrestling with the problems that the passage presents us with. And I, and I think if, you know, that's one of my frustrations really with the scholarship is that I think that there's a, people are not actually letting the text tell them what it's saying and dealing with that.
0: Yeah. Well, um, and and you've highlighted in your book how even early uh, church theologians recognized that there were some potential theological problems with this passage that they Had to deal with and address,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, Augustine—he's the great example of that because he—he. So verses seven to nine are the really—they're the highly problematic verses, and um, because they—that's where it talks
0: about the woman being the image of man. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and and so and it was—it is common to read those verses, people, and to say, "Well, is he really saying that women's not the glory, not not the image and glory?" and so, there, other people have tried to make it into a, a into a sort of compliment for women. You know, oh, you're you're like the crowning glory of a man. Um, I I don't I'm really not convinced by that. It's not um, that's not very enticing. It, no, and and I don't think I just don't think that's what it's saying. The 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 reason, because it's the reason given for the woman having to wear a head covering. It's not you know, um, so. You're the crowning glory of the man. And if the glory, if glory is displayed by not wearing head covering, then why isn't your glory, even if that was true, then why why aren't you released from wearing head covering as well? So that your glory, the man's glory through you, can be manifest. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's all. Anyway, it doesn't quite work. No, yeah. it doesn't work. So, so Augustine. Yeah, I mean, it's really worth reading in on the Trinity. It's book twelve. Um, he he does a very detailed exposition of this, and um, it's great. It's it's so, uh, sort of baroque in its explanation of of how this is an uh, telling you that women are subordinate but they're not really so so he tries to get out of it in in his own particular way but the but the anthropology that he's working with is so alien to how we understand male and female relations that it's um anyway it's a fascinating study for us in how people received it
0: well, on the basis of your work what what are what's the main takeaway that you'd like um for women in the church um actually I'd like to hear you say what- what would you like women to hear from this and what do you want men to hear from what you've written
1: um oh yeah, and go you go just going back to your original question, you asked me how women respond to this, but I've had some very strong reactions from men as well who um really struggle with these texts, so it's not just the women um the the takeaway for me would be that i think paul is a champion of women so that was and really the reason i went into the whole study of, of of women it wasn't women it was paul so paul because i loved paul's writings and so i kind of i definitely went in with an agenda of i'm sure he's saying something positive and and i guess that's had it so you know had its own consequences um and but i really do think he is saying positive things to women and i think that his ministry the history of his ministry backs that up so it's not just me and a whole bunch of other people saying oh we think paul was favorable to women we can see that paul was favorable to women because he he promoted them to positions of leadership and authority and um, responsibility and 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 clearly thought extremely highly of them and speaks of them as his co-workers and sisters etc. in in the same breath as the men. So, I don't think he saw any difference between his female colleagues and his male colleagues, and uh, and so I think it's great to be able to read. The his the text that people assume are where he suddenly says, Oh no, no, but you should actually just be sitting down quietly and doing this and that and wearing your head covering, um, to read them in an opposite way and say it wasn't him, it was the Corinthians. And of course, Paul being Paul was releasing women into all that God has for them, and I think that's who he was.
0: And what would you like men to hear?
1: I'd like men to hear um that this is part of the gospel and that I I've taught this a lot and I find that a lot of men actually it frees them from a way of relating to women that they weren't really comfortable with in the first place and um not everyone but but really the majority I don't think that most men want to want women to be submissive and subordinate to them and and so they're just massively relieved when because what they knew in their heart in their spirits or whatever is suddenly um, it's suddenly endorsed and affirmed by scripture rather than them feeling they're living in some sort of tension with the Bible that they love and the women that they love.
0: (laughs) Well Lucy thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Thanks Matt You have been listening to
0: Onscript delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate